0: The
1: clock is ticking on a new California state budget, and we're starting to get a little sense of what Democrats in the legislature want that is different than what Governor Jerry Brown wants. That's the first topic on this week's California Politics Podcast. For the week ending May 29th, I'm John Myers from KQED News, along with Marisa Lagos from KQED News, and an empty chair here in the studio. (laughs)
0: Boo-hoo. We miss you, Anthony.
1: (laughs) Anthony York, uh, our our other... um, fellow podcaster uh, away out of town today, working hard on things that actually pay him more than a cup of coffee. And so we will uh, we'll tackle these topics on the podcast ourselves. We're going to talk about the state budget, which is something we're going to talk about a lot, I think, over the next few weeks here on the podcast. First.
0: Prediction. The the state budget will be a topic in the Capitol. We
1: will be talking about that a lot. Yes, prediction, uh, you heard it here first. Um, So we'll talk about a a little bit of the budget maneuvering here at the beginning, and then we're going to talk two topics today um, about the potential, and boy, it's a great political parlor game potential, of this um, case that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear on how political maps are drawn and the potential impact in California if you change the rules for how political maps are drawn. But first, let's talk about the state budget. So we're sitting here at the um, the end of May. Last week on the podcast, we talked uh, in detail about the governor's revised budget, which had just been put, on, put out. And now we're starting to see what the Assembly and what the Senate want to do in a budget. If you know this, this is how the... Uh, this is your Civics 101 lesson. The assembly has a budget, the senate has a budget, they go together to a conference committee, they come up with something in the middle. Okay, throw all that out. D- to hell with that. That's not what really happens. What happens is they have their <laughs> right they have no, their, yeah. they have their priorities, then they sit in private meetings with the governor and they strike a deal.
0: Yeah. Maybe maybe they sit in private meetings before they meet with the governor, right, and have a unified front. Maybe they don't. It depends on the year and the leadership. And good
1: point. I mean, because sometimes, right, the two houses are warring. They're not going together uh, with a with an ask of the governor. They have it's a three dimensional game.
0: And I think that was one of the more interesting things we saw come out this week was how while the priorities, like the general policy priorities laid out by Democrats in both houses, were very similar, you know, child care, higher education, res- restoration of, of welfare program, because were made during the recession. How they're getting there is pretty different, and 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 the numbers are really different. And that's not shocking, but it, it is interesting because until this point we'd seen, I think, more of a, a of a united front.
1: Well, and to that point, let's let's set the stage with a couple of numbers here. So if you look at what the uh, the Assembly Budget Committee and the Senate Budget Committee, and actually the full houses, I I watched the Senate here on Thursday morning. Um, pass out their main budget bill, which does not have all the details in it yet because that has to be negotiated, or it doesn't have the final deal in it, I should say. But if you look at what the two houses have put forward, they base their entire spending plan on the revenue projections of the independent legislative analyst. And that is a really, really key point that we have to start this conversation with because the legislative analyst believes that the governor's budget team um, has underestimated how much tax revenue there's going to be, somewhere to the magnitude of two and a half to about $3 billion difference in tax revenue predictions of the LAO and Governor Brown. The governor's got the more cautious number. The LAO's got the higher number. Of course, higher number means you have more money for more programs and more spending. And that is the real basis, um, I think, first for this discussion. I mean, let's talk about that for a moment. The governor has has been conservative every time out of the gate with his numbers uh, since coming back to office. And the governor's gotten his way for a, for a piece I wrote this week on KQED News on our website. Uh, I went back and looked, uh, specifically in the last three budget years, if you look at what the governor's revenue numbers were in his revised May budget, and you compare it to the enacted budget that the legislature approved and the governor signed, they are almost exactly the same number. The governor has gotten his way on revenue numbers, and the revenue numbers uh, are the big first thing that set the size of the playing field, of the battleground right. of the debate here. So the question becomes do they get any room here to get the governor to um, up his revenue numbers?
0: Bold prediction from Marisa Lagos. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. know. Um...
1: Wait, wait, wait to really come down tight on that one, Marisa.
0: Yeah. I think there's I think there's probably some room for negotiation on that. I don't think it's going to be as optimistic as as, as maybe the LAO and, and the legislature is saying. Um, you know, this is Brown. He's frugal, famously frugal. He I think, as you mentioned, I I don't think it's an accident that he has underestimated in recent years and and as we heard when he unveiled his, his revised budget a few weeks ago, you know, he really wants to bring the caution that kind of and you know, envelop the state following the economic collapse a few years ago into this time, even as the economy starts to boom again. And so, I mean, I mean, to me, that's sort of the biggest. It, it's it's exemplary of the biggest differences between Brown and the rest of the Democratic Party in this state. Um, and then when we get into the policy areas, you can see sort of other areas where where that's plays out. Um, but I also think it comes you know to some extent we could talk about the the background of, of the key players here you know that you have a governor who came from a wealthy family and who you know has never had kids and and not really struggled in the same way that both of the leaders of of the assembly and senate have very different more working class low income backgrounds and and a lot of their members come from those places and so i think when you see them really staking out this territory around child care around you know calworks the state's welfare program around medical reimbursements that, that those life experiences play out and and sort of color everything from, you know, the, the sheer number of projections to the actual policies that they want to then funnel that money into.
1: Well, certainly, too. Um, I, I think that's a good point. And I think, too, if you just look at what the governor's, um, his reason to be, his raison d'etre when he walked into <laughs> office, it's bad French. Um, Excellent. It, it was it was to get the state's finances in order. And and it seemed like tops on his list always was getting people to change their expectations of what the budget was going to look like. And so the first way to do that, right, is using a very powerful tool of the governor, which is this forecasting and this ability, um, even outside of the Capitol, to have a bit of the bully pulpit. And remember back to 2011, the governor vetoed the budget, the first veto of a budget in state history. And so... If you look forward to now, it has always served his political purposes, and it's also allowed him to come back after the fact and say, "Okay, well, we have extra money. Let's find a few one-time extra holes to put that money into." So, moving forward in this budget, now we're sitting here with this, you know, two and a half to three billion dollar difference. If you look at the Democrats in the legislature, where do they want to spend the money? Both houses, the Assembly and the Senate, Democrats in both houses, have identified. Uh, child care for the working poor as a key element that they want to spend more money on. How many slots for child care in the the state's education system do they want to put forward? And then there's also some money for preschool proposals and and other elements, again, to, you know, as you listen to Democrats uh, to help these working families, now the the difference is is that uh, one house wants to spend a little more on it, one house wants to spend a little less. A lot and, more, really. Okay, fair Twice enough. Twice as much. Fair enough. Which would be more slots versus fewer slots? Uh, the Senate uh, then wants to count the money under the school guarantee proposition 98. The Assembly does not have it under proposition 98. That may seem like a you know an arcane kind of moment here, but there's also a political element to that too, which is. Counting it under the 98 guarantee means it is counted as part of the overall education spending. There are education groups who may not like that. On the other side... Because
0: it could take money away from other stuff within that education. Yep.
1: And on the other side, uh, the argument is these are educational programs. Historically, these childcare programs were under Proposition 98 until they were cut out of it during the Schwarzenegger era, during the recession era. Um, So some of that has to be resolved. There are also um, ways to put more money into social services programs because the other part of this, too, is by using these higher revenue numbers and um, by putting money under the Prop 98 guarantee, you free up discretionary money. So you could do uh, in-home health care workers, their uh, salaries. You could talk about the developmentally disabled. There has been a very active campaign from uh, the developmentally disabled community and activists in that group, parents, families that talk about they need a restoration and funding that was cut during the recession. They want a 10% restoration. Uh, They've been very active on Twitter, as I found out with some tweets back and forth that I got sucked into in a way. But it was because I saw two lawmakers maybe having a little bit of a scuffle over who was right, who was wrong. But a debate about whether or not you give them that 10% restoration this year, which costs a lot of money, or you do it over two years, and clearly those activists are very... um, they're very mobilized about their particular issue. But all of this costs money. All of this is a negotiation with the governor. Um, I think it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, does the governor have a political reason to give Democrats in the legislature more this time? I, I, I don't know that there is one. But what is, what is the ultimate factor here that the governor is going to have to weigh Uh, And then Democrats in the legislature, you have a new leader in the Senate, Kevin DeLeon, who hasn't been in budget negotiations yet with this governor. I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic over the next couple of weeks. I mean, as you said a little while ago, bold prediction, we don't know. But I think, you know, watching these particular parts, the child care programs, the revenue numbers, um, I think those are going to tell a lot of the tale about what happens.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's an interesting question. Like, what does Brown have to gain or lose on any – You know,
1: on holding fast or giving in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what does. And so I think to me with that, the question that raises is another question, which is in another year, you know, if revenues are far higher then what does that mean? I mean, he does have several more years here. Right. This isn't it's not like this is the, the end of his second term. It's the beginning of a second term. And so, you know, I think that you could make the argument that there is some incentive to to at least play ball on some of these projections and maybe give Democrats a little bit, because the longer you wait, the bigger the asks are going to be in the future if the economy keeps growing. So, um, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, it seems like there's, you know, a fairly good relationship between this governor and the legislature. I mean, he knows that he's been in politics a long time, right? Like, he may not have another race to fight, but he is a Democrat. And and I think that, you know, there's a there's a reason as governor that you would want to not completely alienate the people that are running the legislative houses that you may need in other areas to make other big decisions and and initiate other programs that are important to you. Right. So, you know, the drought, the high speed rail, all these things that are priorities to Brown, I think, you know, are things that arguably, he at least needs some allies yeah. <laughs> upstairs on.
1: Yeah, n- no doubt. And I, and I think, too, um, you know, when you use the higher revenue numbers, let's bring in the other part that's new in the budget process. And, again, this um, you know, plugging my own work here, but this gets back to something I was writing this week when I wrote the other piece, which is Proposition 2, the Rainy Day Fund, the Reserve Fund, which actually it's not just a reserve fund, to be fair to it. It is both putting money in reserves – and using money to pay down debt. When you use the bigger revenue number, more money goes into the Prop 2 system. So more money goes in the reserves, there's more money available to pay down debt. Uh, The governor has a lot of uh, uh, uses, a lot of interest in paying down debt. That's been something he's talked about a lot. If you use the higher numbers, you get to do that. Um, But again, this is not a new scenario. For the last few years, the governor has said, we got to be prudent. The tax numbers have come in higher. They've used his numbers, he's won that day. Uh, And he continues to say, you know, I think you heard him a lot at the May revision and then I've heard him this week talking about, you know, we can't ignore the fact that this um, expansion of the California economy is overdue for a contraction or a stopping or a retrenching. Um, He was speaking to the California State Association of Counties on Wednesday. And had, you know, the classic Jerry Brown line. He said, sometimes ignorance is bliss, but we can only afford so much bliss. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think he continues to play that role of the guy who says, look, it's not going to always last. You know, let's keep doing other things here. So I think the the revenue number is a big number. But I do just want to point out the dynamic that fascinated me enough to write about it this week, which is the budget game is so different now, it seems like to me. So
0: different. And I got to say, as somebody who wasn't here for the last few budgets, it is you took you took a hiatus. I did take a hiatus. I went back to San Francisco (laughs) where I would like to say the first year back frightened the mayor's budget director with my intimate knowledge of of budgeting because, you know, because we had to for those years where it really was this protracted, huge battle, you know, first between shorts I mean, largely between Schwarzenegger and legislative Democrats, but even in the first few years of Jerry Brown's term when there are these deep cuts being made and, you know, every program, every state constituency was up here fighting for every penny. Um, there was a lot more necessity on the part I think of the media to be really intimately involved with these details because we were the only way that the public would know and not to say it's not still important but there's so much less um well th- we're not cutting right first of all and 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 there's and, and even given the areas we've talked about I feel like there is less sort of just fighting happening here and, well, and it's, a di- it's a different dynamic well some entirely. it's
1: some of that is partisan but some of it, there's so much less room to maneuver and I think that's kind of what what fascinated me about it is that when you set the revenue number, that's there's one debate done. Right. Then you set the Proposition 98 guarantee, the amount that goes to schools. There's another debate done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for several years, it was like, well, what's left over? Okay, well, that could be a big fight. Now, before you get to that, you have to set the Proposition 2 number, which has a big role played by the governor's budget team. Uh, that means money set aside into reserves, money set aside for debt that even Shrinks the playing field even further, and so to me, those three things are the most fascinating part of the budget dynamic right. now. And and the other part that is just you know at the risk of being overly wonky here, so bear with me, podcast <laughs> audience. What what the hell? That's at like, the
0: risk. Yeah. I mean, that, how is it possibly different than <laughs> that's normal? That's why you're. That's why they're listening. Let's be honest.
1: Let us hope they are. They'll we'll, we'll see if we get the early reviews. They'll say, bring back Anthony. You know what what's wrong with us? Um, <laughs> but you know. I think that what's also interesting about that is that the way we forecast revenues in the economy is still the system that we have that was used back in the '60s and '70s. I wrote a piece back in, gosh, 2008 for KQED, and it feels like it's just as true now as it was then. Which is like our economy. You're a
0: visionary, John.
1: <laughs> or just like I'm <laughs> like Groundhog Day. I keep returning to the same topics, but our economy is so much more dynamic. Um, than it was in those earlier eras. And we only measure the economy for these state budget purposes and these revenue projections in November and December for the governor's January budget, and again after taxes come in in April for the budget that's enacted on July 1st. Well, the revenue system is even different. I mean, we collect a lot of taxes now in June. Uh, We've got these uh, fluctuations that are based on all these different sectors of the California economy. Why not measure the economy more times? Why not update the revenue numbers more often? I mean, I think the answer is both um, this is the way we've done it, and I think there's a political element to it mm-hmm. too, right? I mean, the more the more times you update the numbers, the more political fights you have to have about how much money you have. But again, it just seems to miss all of these um, ups and downs that would be helpful to writing good budgets. Silly me. Call, call me crazy in that one. So
0: That's John's plug for... That's, uh...
1: For, for a different system. That, for a different. That never, <laughs> but that's a different podcast. That's a different podcast. So, again, I think you know, the next few days, let's watch and see where we are. When we come back next week for the podcast, we will have a little more information. Um, we can't uh, overemphasize the change that has occurred uh, since the majority vote budget provision went into effect with Proposition 25. And now, June 15th is a real date on the calendar that the legislature will act by. So we'll get because they don't get paid otherwise, which so, was
0: maybe the best thing to come out of the recession. Y- there are no July
1: from, 4th camping out uh, or August or October. Or I mean, right. you
0: know, when I first got up here, it was this budget season did not have a true start or end date. It just went on all the time. <laughs> and um Which, you know, and it's not just, I'm being flip about it, it's not just because it was not fun to cover and and for, you know, everybody involved, but it was also bad for state programs. It was bad for schools. I mean, it was really hard for people to decide how to budget for the coming fiscal year when there wasn't a budget yet, you know? So I think um, that that has been a positive change, which has also just made everyone's life more certain.
1: So keep your eye on the revenue number. Keep your eye on... um on some of those programs, child care programs, some of the social services programs, and keep your eye on the trailer bills, the bills that are attached to the budget that are the implementation bills of the budget. Uh, last year we had a solar tax break that was stuck into a budget trailer bill at the 11th hour. We are hearing rumblings that there are other potential ones out there. There was uh, one about uh, information made available to the public about child abuse cases that came forward in uh, news reports this week. I've heard a few other rumblings that are so, like, theoretical at this point. Even I, the gossiping podcaster, I'm not going to just throw them out there yet. But keep your eye on those trailer bills. If you want to get something in quickly... Um, and to the governor's desk, and on a majority vote, and something that will be implemented in short time rather than long time through the regular legislative process, the budget trailer bill is your location. So that's that's worth watching. So let's um, let's pivot to our uh, our other topic, but first let's do a little political side dish here. Um, uh, our weekly little look at a little snippets of things that are worth talking about. Um, mine this week is completely outside of the world of Sacramento, but is still related to a guy in California, political circles that we keep watching, Tom Steyer, the uh, billionaire, uh, former hedge fund manager from San Francisco, who now is the uh, activist on environmental issues, oil drilling issues, the Keystone Pipeline, and oil extraction tax perhaps one day in California we'll see. Uh, Tom Steyer was on the PBS NewsHour uh, this week. Where he was talking about the amount of money that he spends in politics. He has been leading this charge from the liberal side, the left side of the political spectrum, to try to counter some of the money and some of the influence he believes and his uh, supporters believe is coming from the conservative side and these super PACs and all of this money that is getting injected into the political bloodstream across America. So Tom Steyer was on the PBS NewsHour, and I want to play this clip um, which I'm giving due courtesy, to my friends at the NewsHour. Hour. Hope they don't mind me playing it, but it's very—it's just a—it's a great moment here. Uh, host Gwen Ifill was asking him about the money he spends, and um, basically, you know, his fellow Democrats want to undo Citizens United, the Supreme Court ruling that let all of this money really go in in large chunks into the political system, and Tom Steyer is uh, saying that's fine with me, but. Let me hear how he phrases his role in politics and his, his, own, uh, his own size in the political game. As long as this is the system which the Supreme Court has put in place, there's got to be somebody on our side. And when you look at the relative dollars, it really is a David and Goliath situation. And we're very definitely the small shepherd boy with five rocks and a sling. The now, small the shepherd boy, really? Warrior. You're Absolutely. You're I don't think there's any question about it you got to love her reaction, <laughs> right? She's like, really? 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 The small shepherd boy, really? I mean, the fact that, you know, I take Tom Steyer at his word. I think he actually believes he is really outnumbered by, you know, the Koch brothers and all these other things. But, uh, you know, for a billionaire to yeah. be equating I mean, himself with uh, David and the small shepherd boy, that's... Uh, know.
0: Yeah, I mean, we take your point, but maybe we would phrase it a little differently. Yeah. Um, yeah, always always fun to see you know an anchor to sort of break character like
1: that. Well, it also just kind of harkened back that uh, Saturday Night Live sketch from uh, years ago. The do you remember what I'm talking about the Seth Meyers Amy Poehler oh, where yeah. they would do the really segment really? they be like really,
0: really. So yeah. you know,
1: kudos to Gr- Gwen Eiffel for for that one. She she also asked him about the U.S. Senate and why he didn't run, and he said what he said before. He thinks he can make more of a. Um, influence in the 2016 cycle, doing what he's doing than running for office. But I think it's more politically complex than he would say there. I think there are a lot of other factors, not the least of which was who else was running for the seat. And people still continue to think that Tom Steyer um, has an elective office campaign in his future sometime, uh, governor perhaps in 2018, so... We'll never a dull moment never a dull no, moment sunshine. so that's golden my side state. dish You're
0: gonna say sunshine state wrong no. wrong political
1: golden state disaster. i know as in golden state warriors yeah. but yeah well shout the out warriors shout out to the dub nation okay marisa your side dish
0: um well kind of speaking you know back to what we were talking about before about you know the economic crash and, and, and us kind of climbing out of that hole um there was an interesting field poll out this week that showed that while almost half of Californians say they're better off financially than they were a year ago. Um, Half of those polled said they still consider these bad economic times for the state. Um, Of course, you know, the richer you are, the more optimistic you tend to be, which is probably not just in this issue, but in life. (laughs) But I think that um, it's fascinating to me, and I think it speaks to sort of the political appetite for some of, what Jerry Brown has been really pushing from his bully pulpit, which is fiscal restraint. And I, I, I just austerity. don't austerity. I just don't think Californians um, feel like even if, if their pocketbooks have recovered that, that the state has fully recovered from what we saw five or six years ago. So, um, not shocking. I mean, I mean, and people are more optimistic than they have been in a while, but it certainly seems like for more than a decade, or 13 years in a row, actually, the poll said, Californians have been more negative than positive about the state's economy. So. Well, and,
1: and let's think what 13 years ago was. That was uh, right after the electricity crisis and the, the state's dot-com. finances and the dot-com collapse, um, and then there was the recall, and then there was another economic collapse, and there was the big recession, and so people have been hit all these different times, and almost in the way that the governor talks about the new normal of the drought mm-hmm. in California. I wonder if this might be the new normal of the way that people are trying to recalibrate their feeling about um, their jobs, their family's well-being. Their security,
0: really. But I do, think
1: that, I do think that that raises the question about whether the governor has the right message there or not, because Democrats in the Capitol would argue that's precisely why some of these programs that help the working poor need to be funded better. Yeah,
0: no, I mean I think it cuts both ways and and I also think it's you know fascinating um to look at, you know, sitting, you know, in a city like San Francisco where there is this other, you know, tech boom happening, although I've been told where some people are saying it's not a bubble, it's frothy. It's frothy. Like little <laughs> bubbles.
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I know. What?
0: I think the idea being that the entire even if you see some some downturns in in certain arenas or areas that it's not a bubble that's going to burst. There's, uh, that not remains... one,
1: that there's not one big bubble that will pop exactly. and everything.
0: But that remains to be seen. Um, you know, I think I, I, I was also listening to a report this morning about, you know, just nationally the fact that first time home buyers are not entering the market the way they used to. And so I think there's like both the experience of the last decade that's informing people. But I also think that there's been some demographic changes around, um, you know, younger generations and and getting married later and buying property later. And so there's not necessarily the same sort of just general philosophical outlook that maybe existed in years past.
1: Perfect, perfect, perfect transition into our final topic today. Uh, You know, this broadcasting thing, it it works well with you. Um, Demography and demographics and who lives in California and uh, what kind of representation they get out of the political system is at the heart of the second topic here on this week's California Politics Podcast. fascinating case that has gotten a lot of people talking, and so we'll just throw our own voices into that swirl as well. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed this week uh, to hear a case out of Texas that challenges the system, the methodology of using all people in the drawing of legislative residents, districts.
0: right? Yes, residents. yes.
1: Using all people, all residents in drawing legislative districts, the one-person, one-vote rule, uh, which has been around for 50 years. Um, You may remember, you political and uh, otherwise lovely people, junky people out there, that the way we got the one-person, one-vote system was the U.S. Supreme Court in the 60s, arguing that the traditional system where you drew political districts by size and land only would leave some representation of only a few people. Some people represented not the same way. It wasn't fair, Uh, like in California. small counties uh, were represented differently than Los Angeles. Los Angeles would get one senator because it was, you know, and that didn't make any sense. So we moved to this one person, one vote system. And of course, the, the whole country operates under one person, one vote. Well, this case out of Texas says it shouldn't be that. That representation should be limited to just the voting age population, the citizen voting age population. So, You can't base it on just all people, just people who are of voting age and therefore um, getting their representative voice heard in in government. That would be a dramatic, dramatic change if the Supreme Court was to go along. They've simply considered to hear the case, to hear arguments. Um, But boy, there are a lot of scenarios out there, not the least of which is the impact in California and the potential impact because of California's high population of people without legal residency. Um, would be a big blow to the Latino community then as a result, could make some big changes in some parts of the state's representation versus others if you were just simply to make this about voting age population.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those cases that I think is being watched around the country but would definitely have big impacts in California if And clearly Texas, is, the the, the, the well, state right. that it came out of. Um, but I think that the, the people who brought the suit are probably hoping that it would lead to more Republican uh, strength I guess in Texas and and I think that in California whether that would be the case is actually debatable I mean certainly big areas like Los Angeles uh, urban areas could could lose some of their clout and some of the representation but um, you know, we were talking about this before, you know, that the Bay Area really has a, a much higher voter registration and voter turnout. So that could sort of shift some of the power north. Um, and that, you know, even some of the more sort of conservative areas of the state, the Central Valley, some parts of the Inland Empire have very high um, Latino immigrant population. So I, I don't think it would play out necessarily just as cleanly as it might elsewhere. And I also think that um um, shout out to Kathleen Decker in the L.A. Times. She had a great analysis today talking about how in the past efforts in California to really sort of disenfranchise the Latino population have in a lot of ways backfired. If you look at sort of the the voter registration and, and strength of the Latino um, political community following Proposition 187 in the 90s, that there was a big pushback on, on the part of folks. So you could see, I mean, we have... Um, Former Senator, current Secretary of State Alex Fadilla already pushing uh, an expansion to the state's so-called motor voter law, which would essentially say when you walk into the DMV to get a driver's license, you are automatically registered to vote unless you decide to opt out instead of the sort of current opt-in system that we have. Well, there are a lot of technical issues about whether we can really make that work, I think that that in itself could really sort of skew any any d- chal- um, changes, really, that... that a potential decision could make.
1: Well, and, and people who watch the redistricting process in California um, in uh, 2011 uh, will remember that the Citizens Commission that drew those districts, the Independent Citizens Commission, uh, used this metric, the citizen voting age population more than any other one. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, because one person, one vote matters, but it's called CVAP as the acronym for it. And in every hearing, when they would draw a line here or they would consider drawing a line there, they would ask about the CVAP impact. And the CVAP, you know, and trying to use CVAP as the really dominant piece of data there, these districts would have to all look different. And, and, and I go back to something that else that I was thinking about when we were contemplating talking about this today, which I haven't really heard a lot about yet. When... You focus on voting age population, you clearly are not voting, uh, sorry, you clearly are not focusing on younger children and the services that younger children use, especially in poor families. Um, And you, you know, there are so many formulas and so many parts of government that are towards these children, you know, whether they're education or whether it's about food assistance or whether it is about all, you know, whatever it is. you would have districts that you don't really know what those children are. Do the children get their fair shake just because they can't vote? Don't they have a voice? And we're not talking about children who are here illegally all the time. We're talking about legal resident children would no longer be counted in the the calculation of, uh, of representation in some ways. And I think that would be a, a fascinating policy part of this. Well,
0: right. And to your point. To take that even a step further, yeah. So if you decrease the representation, I mean, that could mean a difference in the clout of those, I think this is the point you're making, but of those lawmakers and their ability to bring money back to the district and to support folks who are maybe outside of the regular voting system, whether it be because of age or immigration status. I mean, you can have any opinion you want about immigration, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, in California alone, there are millions and millions of people that live here that do contribute to the economy and that even if they're not, are part of the fabric of the state. And so changing something that dramatically, I think, would really potentially sort of undermine a lot of the system that we've set up politically.
1: And, and you know, we may be just, um, you know, musing on something that's not going to happen. I sure. mean, it's, it's hard to know how the court would uh, would would look at this. There was at least one report earlier this week. Um, that dug up an old document that John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, had worked on in his earlier um, early part of his legal career that was a staunch defense of the one person, one vote system. And so, you know, people said, ah, perhaps, look, you know, he's the kind of guy who wouldn't uh, get rid of the system. But I do think uh, when we think about California, and we have talked so often about California's um, exclusive electorate, a term coined by our friends at the Public Policy Institute of California. It's hard to argue that the exclusive electorate would get any less exclusive under a system that only looked at uh, voting age population and ostensibly voters Mm -hmm. when drawing districts rather than looking at men, women, children, regardless of who they are. Um, The districts would look different. The representation would look different. And it's kind of hard to see how um, this one subset of California that has a lot of power because it goes to the polls would ever lose that power because they would become the dominant part of how districts and how representation mm-hmm. is, is thought of. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating su- subject. I mean, you know, Marisa, you pointed out people have been kind of crunching numbers. Um, uh, guy we all know who does a lot of number crunching, Paul Mitchell, uh, put out something uh, where he crunched some numbers and suggested to Marisa's point that the Bay Area would gain and Los Angeles would lose because of its voting age population. And its propensity to to vote and to have those people, it would gain in political clout even more than it already has. And we've already talked on this podcast a lot about the uh, Bay Area's political clout right now. Um, people vote there more often. The candidates are there for more often. Los Angeles has struggled to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these things could play into factor. Here. I think it's going to be really, it's kind of a fun one to watch. I think the odds. I, I just have got a gut feeling that the odds are low. But it's a hell of an interesting topic. too.
0: I agree. Um, And I think we would be remiss not to mention the other redistricting challenge, right, that we have discussed on this podcast before, which is, you know, far, far different, but is basically challenging uh, the ability of a citizens commission, not the legislature, to draw these boundaries and was out of Arizona, right? Yes, Um, which we're waiting for a ruling
1: this summer very, very soon. And
0: would dramatically impact California, you know, for the 2016 election because we have a Citizens Commission, um, fairly new. Um, So that, I just think, it's interesting that there's several cases percolating and that, you know, I think that both of them speak to this issue of (laughs) there has been a a political move to sort of take the power away from people who gerrymandered, quite Frankly, in the past, which was usually lawmakers and whatever political party was in power, depending on who you were. I mean, both sides were equally guilty of it. Um, I think the public kind of got sick of it to some extent. And and so I think both these court cases, in a way, are, are the establishment pushing back on that. So it'll be fascinating to see whether either of them are successful and, and how that impacts and the way voters react to it. Because obviously, you know, the Supreme Court can make a ruling and then lawmakers or the, the people in the case of California can come back and, you know, sort of redo their law to, to conform with that ruling.
1: It, and, and I guess, too, I just I noticed the fact that that, that people who are critics of the current system believe that um, the fixes that we have made to the system have not made the system better in terms of political representation. But also, I think that, um, you know, there just seems to be this belief that there is some way to make the system perfect or more representative and, I, and 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 it's you know I don't think either the reformers the self-styled reformers or the defenders of the of the old system um, are right in that I don't I don't know that there is any kind of perfect way to do it but you do wonder about the the public's feeling about its elected representatives whether they feel as though they're rep- being represented fairly and whether any of these changes would make them feel better about the rep- representation or just make them more cynical about the entire process so It remains to be seen, but we're going to keep watching that one. And to Maurice's point about the other case, the Arizona um, case on redistricting and the redistricting commission and its constitutionality, Uh, we expect a ruling from the high court within a matter of weeks on that one. So there's more podcast fodder for uh, for another time. When Anthony comes back, he'll be back by then, right? Let me check the calendar. Yeah, yeah, he should be back by then. Okay, good. Shout out to you, Mr. York. We hope you're listening through your feed. I also want to mention to people, too, that you can get the, uh, the podcast, if you're not getting it through iTunes, try the iTunes feed, because that sucker just loads right in your phone every Friday morning. Um, but we're on iTunes and on SoundCloud, um, and I think that's those are the best places to get us. So with that, we'll, we'll let it go. Um, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED News with me. I'm John Myers from KQED, and we'll see you next time on this California Politics Podcast.